Welcome back to the Bar Bar Podcast. Today we're looking at Genesis 14. This is an interesting chapter in the book of Genesis. It's kind of divided into two parts. Where If you should go read it now, click pause, go read or listen to Genesis 14. It's divided into two parts where Abram goes and rescues Lot uh, with his 318 fighting men to take out some kings. And then also the return where Melchizedek the king of Salem comes out to bless Abram, and Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, to keep with what I have been doing in the book of Genesis, um, there's so much to talk about in Genesis 14, I don't want to go through all of it in this short episode, so I'm only going to take half of it. And I'd like to take the first half with the battle of the kings. Here in Genesis 14, what we see is the lesser conquer the greater, We also see the younger supplant the elder, which of course is a major theme in the book of Genesis. And we also see the ability of the people of God to defeat giants and the ability to conquer in the land of promise. Just look what, if you go back and read verses 1 to 16, just look what happens to these Canaanites. They all end up running to the hills. They hide in pits and they all have their possessions taken by Abram. The covenant people ought to have looked to this this kind of text and others like it to see how God will move on a larger scale in the land of Canaan when he brings them there after the exodus. They should have been bold in the faith. One of the great promises to Abraham is that his descendants, his sons and daughters, would possess the gates of their enemies. And that promise is still around today. Now, so we have four kings against five kings. We have Chedorlaomer, Tidal, Arioch, and Amraphel, versus Bira, Birsha, Shinab, Shemaber, and the king of Bela. And Cheddar Laomer is from Elam. And Elam is a descendant of Shem. So notice, go back to Genesis 9, verses 26 and 27, we have part of Noah's prophecy being fulfilled here. A Shemite is ruling the land and subduing the Hamites, the Canaanites. Abram, of course, is an Eberite, where we get the word Hebrew from. And Eber came from Arphaxad, the son of Shem. So the younger descendant of Shem, Abram, is now displacing the elder descendant of Shem, Chedorlaomer. And Shemites are conquering Hamites, that is, Canaanites. You can see this uh, genealogy in Genesis 10, 22-24. Now, in verses 5-7, to Chedorlaomer, conquering giants, uh, we see Chedorlaomer conquer giants and all the people that Israel will face later after the Exodus and, of course, into the conquest when they are done wandering in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 to 25, we find the list of the people. And here we find the people uh, the people of God that they're going to conquer the people of Chedorlaomer. The same people that Abram conquered here are going to be conquered again later. And when you realize these connections, one of the questions, of course, is why did Israel fear? God not only said that they would conquer the land of Canaan, but he gave them proleptically through Abram a taste of what that would look like. Back in Numbers 13, verses 23 to 33, you may recall that Israel's confronted by the reality of these enemies in the land, even giants in the land. 
And 10 of the 12 spies say, we can't beat them. They should have realized, however, that in the midst of all these kings in Genesis 14, and even in the midst of giants, Abram is the stronger. And they are sons and daughters of Abraham, right? In Genesis 14, 20, we'll skip down a bit. Melchizedek confesses the truth that Abram gained the victory because God determined him to have that victory. And that's just true throughout the rest of the scriptures. We usually give Israel a bad shake when they come up to the promised land and they're afraid of the giants in the land. And we say, but don't you know that God promised victory to you? Don't you know the word of God? Why are you so cowardly when God promised you victory? But Christians can do the same thing. You know, how much more shame should we have when the testimony against us is not only Abraham, but Jesus who conquered much more than him? You know, why Christians are we afraid when God promised the nations to be baptized? When he promised all the nations of this world to be given to his son? Why are we afraid? So we ought not to give Israel the short end of the stick without looking at ourselves first. We should also notice in the verses 1 to 16 that Rebellious people are ultimately impotent. Their authority is cannibalistic. Their power, they use their power just to consume their own, and there's no future in that. They're unwilling to mature and to grow up, and the future is given to those who are willing to sacrifice. The future is not given to those who bite and devour one another. We look at our culture today, and sometimes we get anxious, but we should also recognize that when Sodom and Gomorrah were at the height of their power, it was also the exact same moment that Sodom and Gomorrah were on the precipice of their own destruction. In verse 14, Abram musters his 318 fighting men, and these are servants who are born in his house. Now, and they go off to rescue Lot. What does the text mean that they were born in his house? This could mean that all these guys were born into servitude. So Abram's got servants, slaves, and these slaves have children, and these children, these boys, grow up in the house of Abraham, Abram. And that could mean that. But it could also mean that they have been adopted into the household of Abram. We find later in the law, for example, if a slave refuses to leave his master uh, because he wants to stay, he wants to remain, he can go free now, but he decides his master has treated him well and he wants to remain. His master can take an owl, A-W-L, and all through his ear, the servant's ear, to the doorpost, shedding blood. Exodus 21, 1-6. And when this happens, you become an adopted son, or a home-born servant. And that, that could be what's going on here. These men have yoked themselves to Abram, and he's accepted them underneath his headship. And the text specifically says Abram had 318 fighting men. Of course, this isn't all the men that are under Abram's care. These are just the fighting men. But why does the Holy Spirit tell us 318. Why not just say, and Abram took a bunch of fighting men? Remember, the Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. And to give you an answer here, well, I don't have one. I don't know why the Holy Spirit tells us 318 fighting men, but I'm willing to bet there is some sort of significance to it. If you have any guesses, please let me, please let me know. Now these guys, Abram and his men, all go from Hebron to Dan. They transverse the whole promised land, 150 miles. And at night, Abram divides his men to attack. Now, in the Bible, God, of course, loves nighttime salvations. The Bible is just full of them. He very often has a battle at night to deliver his people 
with the rising of the sun. So Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, of course. Passover was took place at night, and they came out of um, Egypt in the day. Gideon attacks the idol of Baal at night, and in the morning his family joins him. Of course, he attacks the Midians at night with his 300 men. He divides them up, just like Abram here, divides them up in the middle of the night to attack the countless Midianites. Ruth is saved at night when Boaz promises to marry her. And in the morning, she's married to Boaz. For Samuel 5, Dagon is defeated at night when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into his temple. Uh, the crucifixion, of course, there's the three hours of darkness. A Philippian jailer and his household are saved at night. Eutychus falls out of a window at midnight and dies, and at daybreak, he's brought back to life. You recall Acts 27, Paul's on a ship in a storm for 14 days, and Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, that they were unable to see the sun. So just dark for 14 days. They break bread and eat together. And as the day dawned, everyone on board washes up on the island of Malta. So there's, And there's probably plenty, plenty more of these nighttime salvations. But this is what God does. Just when you think the dark can't any, get any darker, God comes and saves. We read in Genesis 14 that they smote and they struck these wicked men as far as Hobah, which is another 25 to 30 miles outside of the promised land. So picture what's going on. Abram is traversing the entire promised land from Hebron to Dan, from south to north. And then he's pushing these Canaanites out of the land as far as Damascus in the north. Uh, this is a great victory. Abram is not only defeating the enemies, but he's cleansing the land. He's expelling the people. And he's going to restore all that was taken. And again, we could say, Why, O Israel, are you afraid to fight the Canaanites? Now, as I mentioned earlier, what can this show us today? I think that this can show us patience and confidence. In our last episode on Genesis, I talked about patience in the lure of the wicked. We've talked about patience in worship. And now we can talk about patience and confidence. Notice that Abram conquers the land, but Abram doesn't take it. He's, God did not tell him to take the land. God promised that he would give the land to Abram's descendants. So Abram, although victorious in this battle, is willing to wait and be patient. He's willing to wait for the land to be given to his descendants just as God promised. He's not going to take anything that God has not told him he can have. Also notice that the covenant, the covenant line is full of heroes and heroines that ought to encourage our faith to trust in God. You can read Hebrews 11, and these heroes of faith, remember, are our fathers and mothers. They belong to us. We have an even longer list of heroes in the faith found in church history. Many of us are worried about the future. We're concerned about what may come. Socialism, continuing government overreach, neighbors fighting and devouring one another, and so on. We're concerned, we're anxious, we're worried, we're frazzled. And we think, what do we do? Well, remember that the early church in the bestial empire of Rome that was set against her. Jesus and the apostles told the church that was growing in Jerusalem, men, women, and children, just like we have, that the Roman Empire would bend the knee to Jesus. And they were given the command, now go get them. And it took almost 300 years, but they did it. Rome in the first century already belonged to Jesus. But the apostles in the early church did not go to war, as we may assume. Rather, their warfare was patient and confident, not even loving their lives unto death. 
and the church won. We have a long line of the faithful. We have faithful fathers and mothers in our past that should really put an end to our eschatological pessimism and bring shame to our faces for doubting the strength and the faithfulness of our God to do what is right according to his word. We should be patient and we should be confident that God will do through us what he's promised to do in all the world, even if that requires sacrifice from his people. Thank mm-hmm. you.